welcome everybody back to another episode of the Fearcast. This is episode 10. I've done 10 of these. This is crazy. This is legitimately crazy for me um, that I've gotten this far. I didn't think I'd make it 10 episodes. I had no idea how many episodes I would make it, but we're at 10. We're in double digits now. It's now a real thing. This is exciting for me. Uh, I hope it's exciting for you as well. That means that uh, I haven't quit, so that's something. Um, And that um, you all out there are listening, that there are people downloading this. This is exciting. It's exciting to me. So um, I am having uh, a little bit of of an exciting time for me, and that's great. And I'm having a little bit of a celebration. So before I get into this episode, I want to start off with a question and a proposition for you. And I want you to consider what you do. All right. So let's say I told you that you had a 99% chance of getting sick this year, but you could take a pill to prevent it entirely. How much would you pay for that pill? Think about that. $100? thousand dollars remember 99 percent chance how much would you pay to avoid getting sick this year all right now what if i also told you rather that there was only a one percent chance you'd get sick this year now how much would you pay so it's a one percent chance you're going to get sick how much would you pay so that you wouldn't get sick so i'll ask you another question what about what's the likelihood that you'll accidentally hit someone with your car this year. What do you suppose it is? For those of you with hit and run OCD, it's why you're going back. It's why you're driving back to try to figure out if you did run somebody over. What do you think the likelihood is that you'll actually hit someone this year? It's like a 25% chance. Is it only 10%? Is it only 1%? What about this? What about this for, for all, for, for some of the other folks out there? How about the fear that you're going to stare, you're going to go out into the world and you're going to accidentally stare at a woman's chest, or you're going to be zoned in and, and focused on a man's crotch, them catching you, it ruining your relationship and reputation with them? I mean, what are the chances of that? I mean, you're avoiding parties, you quit your job, you're rarely going out in public now. Um, but what are the, think about it, what are the real chances that this will happen? Now, you avoidance of all of those things I previously mentioned would suggest it's at 100%. It's 100% chance that you're accidentally going to start staring at a woman's chest or a man's crotch. They're going to catch you. They're going to ruin your relationships, your reputation. Everything's going to be over. Avoidance would suggest it's 100% chance of all those consequences happening. But if I were to ask you about the realistic chance of it, if I were to really press you on this, what would you say? Would you say maybe 5%? We just say 1% chance. Now, with whatever you answered, I just want to point out that if you're going out and about and you're going out and you're living your life, going and doing stuff, going to the store, all this stuff, you're seeing other people, unless you live in the most remote area of the world, which I suppose is possible, you could be downloading this podcast and be living in the, mo- the most remote part of the world, which is, a, which is cool. And if you are, email me. I want to hear all about it. But If it's even a 1% chance that all of that's happening as you imagined it, 1%, that means that you are staring at a woman's chest, a man's crotch, and it ruining your life and all that terribleness. It's happening over three and a half times a year. It's happening 3.65 times per year because you run into people every day. The point that I'm trying to get at here is our brains suck when it comes to statistics. 
Our brain sucks when it's trying to evaluate the likelihood of something happening, especially when uncertainty is at play, when we can't be sure of something and we can't be absolutely 100% knowledgeable, knowing of the outcome of something. Our brain sucks at evaluating this risk. We have a tendency to disregard the probability when making a decision when faced with uncertainty. So what I'm talking about here is is called the neglect of probability and its cognitive bias. Now, it's something that you can read all about it. Um, uh, If you Google it, you can probably find a little bit on it. But it helps to explain why it is that your brain and my brain suck at being able to read a situation and appropriately gauge how likely something is going to happen and what our reasonable response ought to be. Again, we have a tendency to overreact to fear and overreact to a situation. We tend to, as we've talked about before, we tend to, our anxiety tends to overestimate the level of risks and the level of dangers involved in almost every situation. And it's terrifying. It stinks. And it usually causes us to go and do things that we wouldn't normally do or avoid doing things that we would typically would do. And we do a bunch of things that we ultimately don't really care about. We don't care about doing compulsions or avoidances, but we do them because we're afraid of what's on the other side of it. What happens if we don't do it? That's why we would do compulsions. Now, I like this quote from this article. It says, the more serious the threat, the more emotional the topic, the less reassuring a reduction of risk seems to us. So in other words, when the when there's a fear on the other end of things, when something else is 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 threatening us, then and it becomes obviously becomes more emotional. We become fearful of it. Or by the way, we'll talk about the excitement of it. It does happen on the other end of things. But when emotions come into play, we overfocus on the consequences or on what's on the other end of things rather than the likeliness that that's actually going to happen. We get blinded by the fear of it. And we completely ignore how likely it is that it's going to happen. And we just go, oh my gosh, I just don't want that thing to happen. I'll do whatever I can to not make that that thing happen. So what I'm going to do for this episode is I'm going to go over a couple of the studies that I think are really cool that help to explain this. Um, This this thing that you already know, that you already know exists in your brain and my brain. But I'm going to go over some of the studies that they did. And I think it helps to really clarify that it's just that we suck at this um, so that we can accept that our brain is going to do this. And then secondly, I'm going to talk about some things that we can do to help uh, to help us to make decisions and to help us to combat this difficulty that our brain has. So if you find this boring, I apologize. Um, but if you like nerd stuff and uh, are, are interested in uh, some uh, some studies that they've done, um, hang in there. It's going to be kind of fun, I think. So the first one I'm going to talk about is one study where they took two groups of people. They took one group and they said, hey, everybody, we're going to give you a mild shock. All right? Mild shock. And they took the other group and they said, hey, everybody, we have a, you have a 50-50 chance of getting a shock. Now, when they told the groups those two things, they tested their physiological anxiety level and they measured them at approximately the same. Even though they essentially said one group would, in fact, get a shock, and the other, it was just halvesies. It was just 50-50. The second group's anxiety didn't reduce even after they slowly told them that they were going to reduce the probability of them getting this shock, even all the way down to 5%. So they went from 50-50 
So again, you could get shocked twice and you're probably going to get, you're probably, well, you are going to get shocked then. But as they progressively reduce it, the amount of times that they potentially could elicit a shock is going to space out to the time they're actually going to hit it. So their anxiety didn't come down. They were still made nervous by this shock, even though they didn't say it was a guarantee. It was just going to happen at a progressively smaller and smaller probability. What it illustrates is, is that we respond to the magnitude, the expected magnitude of the event, not its likelihood. So we were in this group, they responded to, oh no, we're going to get a shock, not, it's really unlikely that we're going to get a shock. If it was 5%, they could uh, press a button 95 times, theoretically, 95 times before ever getting to one of them. Even if they spaced them out evenly, they're going to press that button 19 times before they ever get to one shock. I mean, those are pretty good odds. So we're going to tend to give the thought greater weight and greater uh, uh, value and attention based on the emotional content of it. So the feared, uh, the feared emotions, the painful emotions, um, we're going to give those a lot more attention, especially when there's a feared and painful outcome on the horizon, even when it's highly unlikely to happen. We become hyper-focused on that outcome and not on the chances of that bad thing happening. Now, another study they did, and you'll kind of see where my original questions were coming from, they found that people would be willing to spend $10 to avoid a 99% chance of a painful electric shock. Now, so 99%, that's an almost guarantee of a painful electric shock. They said, you know what? I'll slide you 10 bucks just to get out of this. Thanks, but no thanks. Now, what they found was when they told the group, hey, we'll reduce it down to just 1%, just a 1% chance you're going to get a shock. Now, this is an almost guarantee that it is not going to happen. Now, again, almost guarantee, 10 bucks. If it was essentially not going to happen, a 1% chance, how much do you think that they paid to get out of it? $7. $7. That's still a lot of money to get out of the same shock. Uh, and, and in a new situation where it's almost unlikely to happen. What this study illustrates here, and I think what this is so cool about this, is that it illustrates that the reaction to an unwanted event is not proportionate. So it's not that we respond as I'm willing to spend 10 cents to get out of this 1% chance, whereas I'll spend 10 bucks to get out of the 99. It's that it was uneven. It was not proportionate. Now, this cognitive bias of neglecting probability is also related to the anti-vax community. If you're familiar with the anti-vax community, these are folks who electively choose to not vaccinate their children for fear of some outcome happening. Now, there could be an allergic reaction that a child could have. There can be, there was the, the, the fear about autism. I think that's still bubbling around in that community, but that the, all the research to that was completely debunked, completely uh, uh, thrown out. But the fear is out there for this community that if something could happen to their child. Now, this article points out that there are some statistics to this as well. Weird that I'd bring up statistics in this. All right, so there is a, so think about this. There's a one in one million chance of an allergic reaction to the MMR vaccine. One in one million. Those are pretty good odds. But now let's say they actually contracted a disease from this. 
They actually, or let's say they actually contracted a disease from not getting the, the vaccination. So they say one in four measles patients will require hospitalizations. One in a thousand will develop encephalitis and one, or it says about one or two out of a thousand will die from one of these diseases that this vaccination is going to prevent. But again, one out of a million chance of an allergic reaction. Now, by the way, all this works in the positive too. They did the study and they said, all right, you get to choose one of these two things that you're going to uh, uh, engage with. You're going to choose one of two things. You'll get a ticket for one of these two things. All right, one, you, if, you, if you get this ticket, you get a, there's a one in a hundred million chance of winning $10 million. One in a hundred million of winning $10 million. Now, the other group, you have a one in, in 10,000. In the other, you have a one in 10,000 chance of winning $10,000. So I'll cut to the chase. In this one, it's more reasonable to choose the second game, the second chance of probability. There's a greater chance that you're going to win $10,000 in the one in 10,000. So this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. 10,000 is smaller than 100 million. It's very much smaller than 100 million. So you have a higher chance of winning it. But here's the thing. $10,000 is not $10 million. I mean, how exciting is $10 million? I want to win $10 million. But I mean, $10,000 ain't bad either. But what they found in this study, so frustrating and so obvious, is most people chose the first game. Most people chose the $10 million, one in 100 million chance of winning. They illustrate that the lottery is still popular, to no surprise, am I right? But people are still going to buy because they're focusing on the outcome. The possibility of winning $10 million is exciting. It gets them emotionally, uh, they get emotionally caught up in it. $10,000 ain't that exciting when you compare it to $10 million. Part of this neglect of probability also comes in when we start to hear examples, we start to be influenced by other people when we hear the same story over and over again. And you and I can be very easily influenced, especially when we hear a story from somebody that involves tragedy, that involves something terrible happening. When we hear this story about this tragedy, it often can influence our decisions. It, it, it will influence what we avoid doing. It influences where we go, where we don't go, who we're going to talk to, who we're not going to talk to. The example from this article was uh, people were canceling their flights after hearing news stories about plane crashes. So when the news was showing stories about planes falling out of the sky, as the news is going to do when planes do crash, it freaked people out and they canceled their flight. However, the likelihood of their plane crashing, the one that they canceled, is, was exactly the same as the second before that plane crashed. Nothing changed. It's just a plane crashed. There is a statistic out there that says that planes will crash, like cars will crash, like computers will crash. There's a statistical chance of all this. But that one plane crash that's now on all the news freaked them out, so they electively chose not to go. The more we hear about these stories, the more that we start to hear these tragedies, it will influence our decisions. 
So to further illustrate this neglect of probability bias, uh, I want to talk about a story that happened uh, to me or actually to one of my friends a bunch of years ago um, and about how he was hyper-focused on the fear of this outcome happening. And what he actually did was put himself in greater danger to avoid this other bad thing, this other thing that he didn't want to have happen. So... So he was this musician. He was uh, from from out of town, this, this fantastic guitar player. I went to go see him play at one of the clubs in Hollywood. So in L.A., you cannot smoke in a bar. doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but you cannot smoke in a bar. He was playing in a bar in L.A. So we went downstairs. It was in the basement of this club. We went downstairs, and he was freaking out. He said, oh, my gosh, I, well, all, all the smoke in the bar, I, I'm, I'm going to have an asthma attack. And he was afraid that if he was had this asthma attack, his, his throat was going to close up, he wasn't going to be able to breathe, he was going to pass out, he might die, something catastrophic was going to happen to him. So he was hyper-anxious and hyper-focused on this thought. Now, we went down, and he had maybe a 10-song set, all right? He started playing, he was playing the first song, and halfway through the song, he took his guitar off, put it down, and walked right outside. And do you know where he went? He went outside to where all the smokers were. And he was fine. He emotionally was fine because he thought, I'll just go outside, it'll be safer out there. He actually went, if he was actually going to have an asthma attack and his throat was going to close off because of smoking, he went to the last place that he should be. But his brain was hyper-focused on the asthma attack in the bar. And he completely ignored the actual likelihood of something bad happening there. Now, this is the epitome of the you never know and you're better safe than sorry component of our brain. But in the effort to prevent harm, we can actually put ourselves in greater harm. Now, we can even neglect the probability of things we don't even have numbers on because maybe that number is zero. Maybe this thing is completely fabricated. Maybe it's kind of one of those uh, really distorted thoughts that doesn't have any grounding in reality but we ignore that. We focus on the yeah, but what if? So I'm going to go through a bunch of examples here. One, clients will throw away computers or other electronics out of fear that, they'll, that they've taken on or that they will then take on the characteristics of their roommate uh, who maybe used it briefly to check their email. So they'll completely just throw out a computer for the possibility that maybe yeah, but what if of, uh, of, of taking on all the characteristics. How about this? Someone who will donate money to a charitable organization or a church because they talked about their coworker without them present and now fear that they're gossiping or they've otherwise sinned. Now, there's no clear indication that they had an intention to gossip or disparage them. And if, even if there was, you'd, quote, pay the fine. You'd go, through, um, you'd go through a penance or you'd do the right thing or you'd try to make it right in some fashion. But even with the possibility, the maybe, that you might have sinned or might have done something bad, sometimes what people will do is they will overpay or they will over-respond more than necessary as a symbolic gesture. So again, not respecting the, the, the guarantee that they actually sinned or guarantee that they actually did something wrong, the possibility, the maybe, the 1% they did something wrong, they are over-responding. And separately, we can think about preventative care. So this is not even with the OCD and anxiety community. Preventative care. People will take care of their bodies. They'll eat healthy. They'll work out to protect their body against the possibility of getting a disease or disorder later in life. But they have no proof 
that they're going to actually come down with that disorder or that disease later on in life. So you can see they're over-responding to the possibility of something happening. Now, some of, some of this, the, the preventative care aspect may have some of its merits, but we'll certainly talk about that later on. So I'm going to go through a, a couple of examples or a couple more examples of how people might be neglecting the actual probability to possibly prevent pain and harm in some point in their life. Now, if this is super boring to you, I apologize. I've been told by some, some of the feedback, and by the way, thank you for feedback to anyone who has feedback about the show, um, that I need to go into more detail. So I'm talking to you, Byron. So here's some examples. One, people driving daily, but refusing to fly. People refusing to take medication for fear of side effects while ignoring the likely positive and intended results. And now I'm, I'm going to steal this one from a comedian. Um, we live in a society where we wash our hands excessively and use Purell all the time. But whenever we go through a drive-thru, we take that ketchup packet, and we put it in our mouth and we just open it immediately. We just completely ignore that one. The thought about owning a gun for self-protection when the statistics show that you're more likely to harm oneself than to ward off an intruder in self-defense. Another example, avoiding talking to someone who's gay because you could, maybe, what if, maybe kinda, might be attracted to them. Avoiding getting married because you could cheat or they could cheat eventually and you don't want to be hurt. Now again, as I've talked about before, sometimes in order to prevent harm, we actually put ourselves in greater risk. Some examples of this might be washing your hands excessively to avoid getting sick or contaminated, but actually causing more harm to your skin. One example I've heard before is uh, wiping in the bathroom so excessively to avoid getting ill or contaminated that you actually make yourself bleed and actually could cause an infection in that way. Another example would be avoiding even getting a job or applying for a job because they may at some point ask you to do something unethical, or they may ask you to resist doing your compulsions which you would be afraid of, whatever the consequence of the compulsion is. But you're resisting getting a job for the, for the off chance that they might ask you to do something in it unethically. Why I go through all these different examples is to help illustrate and to help kind of validate that our brain sucks at this. Our brain sucks at trying to figure out what is safe, what is dangerous. I know in the last episode, we talked about reevaluating safety and trying to develop a greater sense of safety, but we can also recognize that we're, we're, we're kind of fighting an uphill battle here. Our brain sucks at trying to figure out what is going to work for us and what's going to cause us harm. I'm also illustrating that we can oftentimes be led astray by our emotions. You've heard me talk about how feelings are stupid. I'm, again, I'm the only therapist on earth that's going to tell you that feelings are stupid. We give them way too much credit, way too much credence in our life, and we use them way too much to make decisions in our life. Now, again, they are informative and uh, they can be helpful in helping us to guide us into making the right decision. But if we base all of our decisions simply on the emotion that we have, it is going to lead us into some pretty weird places and lead us to some pretty weird decisions. We also need to recognize that there's no decision that you and I are going to make that's going to make us completely safe. There's dangers or there are dangers everywhere. And that's okay. This is the reality that we all live in. Every decision that we make is going to have some potential 
consequences. And they can be completely small or they can be completely terrifying. Applying to college can be a threat. There's the potential that you could fail out. You could get kicked out. You might not succeed. It might not work out career-wise at the end. There are going to be risks and dangers and challenges with everything. But in the college example, is it worth it to you to go to college? Is it worth it to you to go out and go back to school? Is it worth it to you to, to call up your friends, even though you might run somebody over as you go and hang out with them? Or you might stare at their body parts and you might, get, uh, you might cause a scene. All right, so now the main questions. What do we do about all this stuff? So I want to go through just eight things real quick, as fast as I can, on what we can do to help make a decision. Number one, reflect on your past experiences. I want you to think about, has this ever happened to me before? So have I I ever been in this situation before? And think about what happened. Now, if it has happened to you, was the outcome as catastrophic as you had imagined it? Also consider, is this my common fear that I've wasted my time on over and over again? Or is this situation brand new? This will help you to make a decision as to how much weight you should give this. Number two, what are other people around me doing? Consider what the average person is doing in making that decision. Now, the average person isn't the most paranoid person you know, or the person that tends to be in extremes. Now, this is like the cleanest person you know, or the dirtiest person you know, or the most conservative, the most adventurous. You want to think about the average person. What are they doing in response to this? Are they washing as much as I am? Are they not washing as much as I am? Are they driving in the same situations? Are they not? Think about that. Number three, Resist buying into the always or never mentality. If it's wrong for the SAT, it's wrong for you. Also, almost nothing is always or never. So the likelihood that what you're afraid of is always this or never that is just silly. So number four, is there evidence for why you are making the decision that you're making? Can In other words, can you cite reason for the decision you're making rather than just fear? Is is there evidence for for the decision that you're making? If your reason is mostly emotionally based, then you're probably letting your fear dictate your directions. Again, this should be a combination, not just one or the other. Number five, do you have any strong emotional pull towards one side or the other? Or aversion? away from one. Remember that a heightened emotional response may be distracting you from the likelihoods. It may be distracting you from the probability of something bad happening or even something good happening. Number six, would your response or decision be different if the circumstances of the magnitude were different? Kind of like with the lottery example, but in reverse. If you're perhaps overwhelmed by going to college or even applying to college or afraid of the potential outcomes of it, maybe applying to Harvard seems unreasonably overwhelming, but would you be able to apply to a local state college? Another example, would you, would you go camping in a place that doesn't have bears? Or are you fearing bears no matter where you go? So again, the magnitude of the outcome may be, may be influencing your decision. So number seven, second to last. Consider which option leads you closer to your ultimate goals and is in line with your values. 
Sometimes we're faced with no clear option. But if one leads you closer to your ultimate goals in life, like the choice between beginning treatment or continuing to avoid things, or sticking your neck out at work for possible advancement in your career, or playing it safe again, take the risk. And lastly, and I think this goes for anything that I could ever talk about on this podcast, is I want you to recognize that you're strong enough to deal with failure. You're strong enough to deal with the outcome not working out. You can survive this. The likelihood of even the worst case scenario happening is one, small, and two, even if it were to happen, you can probably survive it. If something goes sideways, you can probably handle it. Recognize that there is no perfect or right choice in pretty much anything that we do. And sometimes it's choosing between two bad things or even two good things. And this is kind of the point of it in dealing with uncertainty. Remember, when faced with uncertainty, you and I are going to tend to disregard the probability of that bad thing happening or even that good thing happening. So we want to try to think about that situation in a more logical, straightforward, reasoned manner, and then make a decision from there. So a question coming up next. All right, this question was submitted by Anna. She asks, How can I convince my 23-year-old son to seek treatment? He is resistant to any education or attempts to try to find a group and rationalizes all of his behaviors or tells me I'm shaming him by discussing his behaviors. It is affecting his ability to go back to college and other life tasks. Anna, thank you so, so much for this question. My heart so much goes out to you right now. I can't even imagine what it's like to have a 23-year-old son who you see in so much pain, not interested in seeking therapy, not interested in seeking help, and not interested in trying to get his life back. Now, I can obviously only come from this from a clinician's perspective. Um, I don't have a 23-year-old son, so the best I'm going to be able to do is come from my experience as a clinician and not as a parent, though my empathy comes to you as a parent and as someone who sees or hears the pain in what you've written. As I'm thinking about what you've written in, in, in your question, um, I can't help but think about um, my own position as a therapist. And what's so frustrating is being able to recognize or having to recognize my limitations to be able to help somebody, to be able to sit across from somebody and see that they're in pain and to see that, that there's this thing that's going on that's bouncing between their ears that is dictating to them what their life is going to be like and what it hopes the world around that person is going to be like, which includes uh, parents, other family members, uh, friends, school. It's going to include all of that, and it hopes to incorporate everything. Um, and we're, and ultimately speaking, you and I are powerless against this. The old adage or the old saying, um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, is really apt in this situation. The best that you and I are going to be able to do is going to be able to show your son that there is another way, that there is another option, and that there is an out to what he's experiencing. However, 
it is entirely up to him as to whether or not he takes you up on that offer, as to whether or not he electively chooses to go back to college, get out of the cycle and the, the, the rat race that he's finding himself in through obsessions and compulsions and being stuck. So my first advice would be to relieve yourself of the responsibility for him and his recovery. It's not. It's not your responsibility. It is his. What I'm initially struck by in reading this as well is um, uh, his insistence that you're talking about or that, that you are shaming him for even talking about his symptoms. Um, if you haven't already, have a chat with him about what he means by that. Talk to him about the—and the, I don't know the language that you are using. It's possible that there there is something that you're saying that is indeed shaming. However, chat with him about what you're saying that seems to be so offensive and so triggering to him. And in that conversation, maybe ask him, what's a better way that you can encourage him? What's something that you can say or something that you shouldn't say from his perspective that would actually be more encouraging and feel less shaming? Uh, that might be a good place to start. Now, as, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about this situation, um, I, I'm kind of of two sides. Um, I have this empathetic side for the pain that he's in, and also have this kind of, um, for lack of a better term, this kind of battle side to me, this combative side. My empathetic side um, just wants to heap love on him, uh, that wants to support him, uh, use encouraging words, positive affirmation, and talk with him about what his hopes and dreams are, um, and to do anything that I could to be able to help him get back to this life, to the life that he wants to have, the life that um, perhaps he was pursuing at college prior to um, the OCD symptoms really uh, increasing. Now, my battle side, however, um, my battle side just wants to make it damn near impossible um, for the parasite that is OCD to survive in his life. Um, and that may be by restricting anything in his life that makes OCD comfortable, that makes it possible for OCD to survive. Now, what that looks like is resisting as best you possibly can, resisting any reassurances not engaging with his compulsions in any sort of way. And for some people, this is going to look different. I mean, you didn't specify exactly uh, or the details of what the symptoms are, but for some people, it's going to look like um, uh, uh, turning off the water after an agreed-upon time. If the family takes 10-minute showers, then the water gets shut off after 10 minutes, whether he's got soap all over him or not. Um not giving him rides anywhere. Uh, if he refuses to drive, you can say, well, we're not driving you anywhere. You're on your own and you can figure it out. Um, now, the caveat to that is going to be we'll drive you back and forth to whatever doctor or therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist that you would like to go to. Other than that, you're on your own. Now, there are a number of other things that you could do, but again, some of the details here would be uh, worked out if you were sitting across from me in uh, in my office. But you want to make it really, really hard for OCDs to survive. And, and you know what his symptoms are. You know what his limitations are. Um, you don't want to be malicious or you don't want to be mean with your response. But think about what, are, what would be the rules of the house? What are the, things that, that, what are the things that are expected of everybody else in the house? And essentially, you're going to say that we are going to do, we're going to treat you 
like everybody else in the house, but when it comes to OCD, we're not going to play that game, and I'm not going to interact with that. And it, it may sound cold, but it's ultimately, he's going to be given a choice to either make do with the limitations that he has, to accept that, that there are things in his life that he just simply isn't going to have anymore, um, or that these symptoms are causing him so much more pain, so much more discomfort, and so much more struggle in his life that he would rather take the risk and go to counseling, do the hard work to actually address some of these obsessions that he's having and some of the compulsions and avoidances and ritualistic behavior that has gotten him into this place where he's dropped out of college and refuses to go. When I talk to people who have gone through this phase, what they'll often talk about is the thing that got them back to their life is following their values, getting back to the things that were previously important to them, getting busy with their life, going and doing work, having friends, reconnecting with friends, reconnecting with school, or doing other meaningful commitments in some area of their life. And again, unfortunately, it's his choice as to whether or not he wants to make his life about OCD But you don't have to make your life about his OCD. Again, if you were sitting in my office, I would encourage you to go and pursue your own hobbies, the things that you enjoy, to go and do all the things that you love to do. And if it means that he can't go with you, that's totally fine. But talk with him about how wonderful your life is because you can do X, Y, and Z. Now, you don't need to rub it in his face or to then be shaming about it, but be excited about you living your life. I've worked with so many clients who are are homebound or whose families have accommodated so much for their, uh, their symptoms that they essentially put, the family members put their life on hold um, to care for their their son or their daughter, um, thinking that it's going to be helpful and that the loving thing for them to do is to sacrifice their own life for their son or daughter who is in so much pain. However, that, that doesn't get anybody anywhere. It ends up just reinforcing to this, reinforcing the OCD and making it stronger and stronger and making your life about OCD and making your son or daughter's life about OCD. Now, the other thing that I would say is, if you haven't done this already, is to go and get your own therapy, Um, to talk to somebody who understands OCD and who can support you in the struggles that you're going through, and perhaps also to help train you and encourage you in ways that you can be a by-proxy therapist for your son and kind of work with a therapist to kind of figure out ways that you can help Uh, that you can help reach him, that you can also uh, uh, try to figure out those specific ways where you can pull back on potential accommodations or, uh, or other things that you're doing that's engaging and supporting his compulsive behaviors and avoidances. Um, so trying to pinpoint those things would be really helpful with a therapist. So uh, that, would be, uh, that would be a great first step is to find a therapist uh, and to bring up all these things with him or her about that. So again, I do really, really appreciate you submitting this question. And again, my heart does go out to you uh, in, in this tough, tough process. Best of luck. 
All right, and that'll be about enough of that for today's episode. So, uh, as always, if you have a question for a future episode, you can uh, go over to the fearcastpodcast.com website, go to the submit question link, and leave a message for me there. You can also leave a voice message for me. My voice message is 714-594-9281. Again, 714-594-9281. So you can leave a message for me uh, there either way. If you like the show, please feel free to leave me a positive review over at iTunes or uh, or any other place that you download your podcasts. Um, all the reviews help uh, other listeners to find the show. As always, the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about finding a therapist or need any extra help in your recovery, uh, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the Find Help page, and you'll be able to find more information about it there. So... As always, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.